Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new replacement list we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is King Kong. I don't dramatic music, I guess. Um, Yeah, we like we like that one. So King Kong is... 41st on the AFI list. And I think that's a an interesting spot for it because it's in the top half, even though I don't know. I kind of don't know if people were to like just make their list of like the top 100 movies. Would this be one of their top 100 American movies just flat? Or is this the kind of thing you feel like you've got to do just because this thing is so influential? And and I mean, a true landmark in and special effects as well. I don't mean to to denigrate it or anything because there is a lot about this that works really, really well. Uh, and it's a movie that, of course, still looks, as far as I'm concerned, it still looks pretty good. Uh, it's directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shadzak, and the two of them uh, had worked together for a long time before. Uh, one of the movies that they had worked on was a documentary called Grass, a story of a nation's battle for life. So these were people and they did Chang, a story of the wilderness. They did Moana. They did a number of a number of documentaries. And, you know, in the sense that documentary means something different to them than it does for us. But basically, these people uh, were the kind of guys who would go out into some I mean, genuinely remote area to try to tell some kind of story to, to narrativize some aspect of a of a culture or a uh, of a people that was unfamiliar to your average viewer. So the one that I keep coming back to is is Grass, which is maybe not the most racially sensitive film in the whole world. It's the story of um, some some tribesmen in Iran. Uh, basically following the the grass to to feed their their livestock and there is a very very exciting like genuinely pretty shocking sequence of people and animals and belongings trying to cross this rushing river and that's the that's basically the template for for what you see in in grass and then going forward to moana or chang or even king kong so it's very interesting to watch these two guys who had made their made their careers and made their bona fides primarily out of early documentaries go for, well, what if we just dialed this one up to 11 <laughs> instead of doing instead of doing a documentary about some people on a remote part of, of Africa or whatever? Uh, what if instead we did a highly metaphorical highly technologically difficult, highly engaging adventure movie uh, about a giant gorilla who is very giant and very gorilla. Uh, So that's like that's the basic premise of this one. It just it's it's something that I think we've kind of lost in our discussion of the film and our discussion of King Kong generally, because goodness knows there must be a million and one ways to interpret this. And all of them are pretty, pretty neat. But I just kind of wanted to start by saying it's like if it's like if you took choose your favorite documentarian, like if if maybe Alex Gibney, who is famous for these kind of muckraking documentaries about famous people, what if he was to actually make a biopic of Elizabeth Holmes? Like that's kind of that's kind of the way that I look at this. It's the same kind of approach where people who were expert in the nonfiction realm decide to go into an explicitly fictional fabulous kind of realm instead so um so what's your favorite king con interpretation which one do you like i was gonna ask you what your go-to is um particularly in light of the 
uh, recent Godzilla versus Kong, which that movie slaps. <laughs> um, I don't know that it's good, but it slaps. Um, I, I mean, if Godzilla is like the fear of nuclear power generally, like, is there one? I guess here's what I want to ask you. Like, is there a standard one for Kong kind of like that? I mean, there's the Quentin Tarantino interpretation, um, which is expressed in Inglorious Bastards when they're all playing the game with the card up on their head and they have to guess who they are. And the, that one particularly sadistic German guy has um, has King Kong. And he's like, am I the story of black people in America? And everybody's like, no. And he's like, well, I must be King Kong. And like, I think that one has definitely taken hold. And I do think that's a good one. And I also really seriously doubt <laughs> that is the that is the intention, even though I think it's a very good interpretation of what the film is, uh, because if you look at Marion C. Cooper in particular, like that dude was that dude was crazy. Uh, so that I don't know that that's something that they were really thinking about the parallels. Uh, but that is one that is definitely very strong in which I do think you get for me. I don't know that I necessarily have like a favorite allegorical or metaphorical interpretation. I was just really surprised when I went back to this at this point, it was a while ago, about a year or ch and, and change. But I went back to it and I was just I just found it so viscerally upsetting like I really felt like it was just a, a sad movie and it kind of hurt to watch. And I didn't I didn't like it very much. And it's not to say that I don't think it's not like a really impressive movie. Like it's obviously a very impressive movie. There's a lot that's really, really good about it. And and I think the proof that I was so viscerally upset by it is is the tasting in that pudding that if you watch it with sympathy for for Khan himself, then I think it has to be extremely upsetting to watch him get lured into into his death in this sort of terrifying transition across the ocean, uh, going from being a god to being an object of fun and an object of mockery. And then when you start to get back into your godhood, then everybody freaks the heck out. And it's, I just found it, I just found this one kind of hard to watch. Like I was really surprised that I found it, I found it so emotionally distressing, but maybe I'm just a big softy. I still kind of laughed when Kong like bends the, the T-Rex's finger back and he's like, is he dead? I'm like, yeah, I think he is dead. Like that, <laughs> like that itself still kind of got me, but like there, there were not many like, oh, he's like, he's so fun or, oh, it's so it's so adventurous and swashbuckling. Uh, but I, for me, it's definitely a movie that I, I just found really emotional and not in a way that I think I'd like to revisit all that often. I mean, that's how I watch it too. <clears throat> Any Kong thing, really quick side note, the, the, uh, T-Rex moment is a good example of this. I feel like in every movie with King Kong, like there's always some, at least one little moment like that where like, Kong is just made so expressive and so human and like I love I live for those little moments mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I, I just love how much I, I, animation but not like literal movie animation but just how much animation can so often be gotten so how much personality can so often be gotten out of Kong um yeah I mean for me I always I'm always rooting for for King Kong I'm always sad. Uh, I tend to to view these as, if not American slavery, uh, a colonial thing in general. Um, I also like just seeing this one as like, I don't know, commentary on, on zoos, really, um, or like speciesism. Um, you know, which is its own form of colonialism, but like, you know, taking this apex, uh, apex creature, apex animal, um, and making like forcing it into this fundamentally like voyeuristic thing. Um, 
So I think there's like, you know, an even kind of more literal way there to to see these movies. Again, I don't know if that's what they were up to. Probably not. But like, especially now, like our relationship with other species, with zoos, with, um, you know, it, not to be clickbaity, but like, right, Harambe kind of became the, the instance of this. Mm-hmm. But anytime like an animal gets out or someone, and here's the key, falls into a cage, what do you expect? Like, we can't. We brought them here, imprisoned them, and now they're confronted with a per. Like, what do you expect to happen? We always blame the 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 animal in that instance, and sort of wash our hands of our culpability. And like what you were saying here, like when King Kong becomes a god again, everyone freaks out. Like, right to me, there's maybe in just an even easier not even allegorical connection there just literal connection there that you know i like thinking about that one too so um but yeah I, I, I think that's kind of the magic of king kong like there are so many ways you can take it and so many of them are compelling yeah i think i think it's it's very fair to say that in 1933 this is just a pure spectacle thing and you you absolutely get that You get that now watching this movie and watching King Kong on top of the Empire State Building swiping at airplanes like that is there's a reason that image is so iconic. Why people who have never seen this movie can identify it instantly. It's it's in there and it's great. And I really think that that's like a triumph of filmmaking. To me, that's a really great thing. But it's the reason this movie just kind of sucks to watch is is because there are two people in this movie who have a soul and one of them is the Faye Ray character uh, and Darrow and the other one is Khan and those are the only two with souls and everybody else is either pretending to have a soul or is not even trying to pretend that they have a soul in the case of, of Carl Denham uh, the person whose idea it is to go to Skull Island and then to to bring back Khan once once he's made himself known and it's just it's just so interesting that he's he has such a personality to him and he has such such life to him. And like the 30s actors are doing a lot of 30s actor things, which I think is like they they look and sound like 30s actors. Um, the guy playing Denim, uh, Robert Armstrong, is is exactly <laughs> the kind of guy uh, who you'd expect to see in your early 1930s movie like he sounds like him he looks like him he moves like him like all of those things are just very stereotypical uh but there's there's nothing about watching Khan himself that feels like oh i'm watching a type it really does feel like you're not to make this a meme but like a new guy just dropped like a new mm-hmm. kind of guy just dropped and his name is Khan and and he is <laughs> he is so he is so charismatic and he really is I mean, I mean this in the same way that Captain Kirk means it about Spock, but he's so human. Like you really can see the you really can see the life and the light and the intelligence and the soul and the person inside something which which um, I mean, the characters in the movie won't grant personhood and which I kind of I don't know that I would necessarily say personhood for him either, because I really think godhood is the right term. Like he really is a god, but with with the emotion feeling and and cognition of you know sort of that greek god model where he is fallible uh and he is he is someone you can defeat but he is also greater than any any man can dream of being i use that kirk's box scene as a teaching moment a lot to which is why i made a noise at it um I mean, I get what you're saying. You're right. Um, I just, I always bristle because I'm like, what is that fundamentally doing? It's centering the human as the best. I think it's, I think for, for Khan or for Spock, it's centering it as in the limitation of being human. Right. I'm saying that in someone so different from myself, I can find the thing that I see in myself. I can recognize their. No, I get it. And I I get it. And like when Kirk is saying it, like, right, that's a really emotional moment. I like I understand it. This is more of the like 
right? The the literary theorist in me is taking mm-hmm. over and they're like, but what is the implication? Well, it's that human is is the the normal, right? Kong has to be restrained to be made human, really. And when he's free, like he's too much after that. Um for the movie, I mean. Uh, um, yeah, I was about yeah, to say, I don't know. No, 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 I like no. him most when he's... <laughs> no, me too. But I mean, I mean, for the movie, like, right? He has to be... For him to be full God means he is fundamentally unhuman, which means he has to be killed. Because maybe we should be thinking about, what does he want? Freedom <laughs> and a girl. Man, that seems pretty inherent to the American dream. I was about to say there are a bunch of mob movies which basically work in this um in this particular mold. Yeah, so like maybe we should think a bit more about hmm are we the baddies? I digress. Uh, All right, I feel like people it's it's like I said before this one is just so universal um that even okay. if you've never even if you've never seen the original movie about the monka then you certainly understand what's going on in here. I think this is this is almost like it's almost like Jesus. Like well, <laughs> this is a story which I think people understand the same kind of way they understand the Easter story, even if you don't know all of the details. You I just, still kind of know what's happening there. Two things. One, it's a good movie. Go watch it. <laughs> Two. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't want that lost too. <laughs> we are on, I don't know. We're smelling our own musk or something today because I've described photograph as profound and you just called King Kong Jesus. So. Yeah, it kind of is. Uh, can I tell you my, before we move on, can we, can we talk about like my favorite factoid for, Please for this do. movie? Uh, so this has some very famous like sound effects. Um, so the dinosaurs, for instance, they're like thinking about it in terms of, well, we have these dinosaurs on this island. Nobody knows how they sound. We know that, but we want a certain effect, but we also don't want it to be familiar. Uh, do you know this trivia? Do you know how they how they put together like the the con roar and the dinosaur roars and stuff? Dude just went to the the guy's name is Murray Spivak, and he just he went to the zoos with a recorder and basically like stuck the microphone at like lions and tigers and stuff. And then they played it all backwards. And that's where like the sound of this, like very obviously animal, but like you can't place it kind of thing comes from. Like when I say this is, this is a technical, uh, a technical triumph. I really do mean there's a lot of stuff going on in this that you're just like, okay, that's, that's really cool. That's really well done. And I mean, like we like we were sort of saying, you don't get the sense of of Khan being this this god without that uncanny lion, tiger, whatever kind of kind of scream like there's there's definitely something to that. I really like that. I always like uh, production factoids like that, especially or just like, how do we make the sound or how do we make this this visual that like we haven't had to do before or don't have a point of reference for? Um, so I really like that one. So I was toying around in an inflation calculator to see, to kind of measure King Kong by like, cause right. It would be a blockbuster today. So like how much would it make? Um, I think I have the number. Let me, um, so it made 5.3 million in 1933 dollars. Uh, and I think today uh looks like it'd be about 118 million which i suppose is a lot less than i thought well i mean you compare that to to other like 1930s movies and the inflation the inflation doesn't really do justice to it especially when you think about a movie ticket is a nickel a movie ticket is a quarter like when you think about it in those terms it's just like it's a lot of nickels yeah I, I think I'm like the inflation rate, I guess, is less than I thought there. But like, that's still like it, it would have done bank today. I was just curious, like how much different. Yeah. Also, it's de- right. It's the 30s. It's it's depression. Like that's affecting things, too. So it's not a full picture, but buco bucks. So let's talk about how this ends. Uh, it ends, of course, with 
King Kong getting shot down by the airplanes. And that scene is a lot quicker than you remember it being. It goes really, really fast. I imagine it must have been deeply expensive to show (laughs) these little model airplanes flying around the stop motion ape. Uh, So that's that must have been a contributor. Uh, But eventually the guns, you know, get get King Kong and he falls from the top of the Empire State Building and somehow does not go straight through to New Jersey (laughs) falling from that height. And there's a guy who who looks at the, the big old corpse and and says that the planes got him denim uh carl denim who of course is like such a carnival barker kind of guy always has a quip always knows how to sell something when kong came to america he is the eighth wonder of the world just always what's the showman going to say and the last line of this is i'm gonna see if i can do my 30s voice no, it wasn't the airplanes it was beauty killed the beast and like it's it's that kind of way of looking at it through this sort of fundamentally salesman carnival barker kind of view and it's a very famous last line because it is pithy and it is catchy and memorable but it's also i think a really perfect last line for for what this movie is is about when you read it like you're not marion c cooper which is to say you read it as well that's the that's the headline like, sure, give that, give that the headline, but there are other things that killed him, and maybe the person most responsible for his death is the guy making the little quip about Beauty and the Beast here. And to me, that's what makes this such a perfect last line, not just the quality of, you know, this is a, a goofy a goofy little thing to say, which people will remember, but it's it's also something which I think is really indicative of the kind of character. So... With all that in mind, the theme for King Kong is perfect last lines. Uh, so Matt's going to get to choose which movie best suits that theme based on the arguments presented. And all chosen movies have uh, have a chance to head to the subtitles replacement list. And the goal, remember, is not to choose the work that's best or most important, but to choose the one that best suits the theme. So we have... Two films uh, that work for this idea of perfect last lines. And this is actually a topic which I'm interested in, uh, which movies do have incredible last lines. And a spoiler alert, there are an awful lot already on the AFI list. I think people like those and go figure. Uh, The two that we've got here are Back to the Future uh, by Robert Zemeckis and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang by Mervyn Leroy from 1985 and 1932, respectively. So I'm just going to say the last lines and then you get to choose. And then this episode will be done in 25 minutes. So that's that sounds good to me. It's a good counter to mine. Yeah, I was about to say that way we can have two hours worth of content. (laughs) We just we just change the uh, the balance every week. Split a little unevenly. So (laughs) the last line of Back to the Future, I'm just going to drop the last lines here. I wasn't kidding about that. But the the last line of Back to the Future, which you probably know already, is roads where we're going. We don't need roads. And then the last line of I'm a fugitive from a chain gang uh, is I steal. So those are (laughs) those are the lines. Suddenly Gollum emerges. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting scene. We'll talk about it. So back to the I mean, future. if if you really want to save time and just drop the final lines, we can also talk about the best Robert Zemeckis film. You should have known I was going to do this. Is it Death Becomes Her? Yes. <laughs> do you want to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit? We can talk about who framed Roger. Rabbit. I mean, I always want to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit, but this doesn't seem like the place. I don't know if you're going to give me a place is my is why I'm just going to start ramming it into things. I mean, the the best the best line in that movie is not at the end of the movie. Unfortunately, that's true. That's true. So Robert Zemeckis, uh, <laughs> someone who I think kind of fits into the Marion see cooper mold of of sensationalism and and bigness in his movies and there is always kind of this technological pull that we're supposed to be seeing he's somebody who definitely looks at a movie and thinks what is the weird 
techie thing I can do with it. And when you when you have Robert Zemeckis doing really interesting tech things, then it turns into Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is just such a spectacular display of of live action and animation characters and sets interacting with each other like that thing's a miracle. And you get something like Death Becomes Her, which has these really fun, really kooky and strange practical effects uh, for for Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn to fool around with. Or you get Back to the Future, which has fewer of those those fun technical things, though I guess there are I mean, the DeLorean is such a such an obviously famous uh, movie piece, movie item that you kind of can't escape from it. In fact, when we had our driver's ed class and all of us had to all of us had to do a presentation on one part of the car, one of the things that you could choose was the flux capacitor. Like it, it's that kind of thing where people just sort of casually know all of the the, the gags and bits and, and bells and whistles and so forth. Back to the Future is maybe a little bit less on the the technical side, but it is it is one where the premise, of course, is just a classic sci fi thing. And and I think in some ways, Marty McFly is not quite as messianic as Khan, but, you know, maybe he's one of Khan's apostles or something like that in terms of everybody just kind of understanding who he is, even if they don't understand where the orange vest came from, which is bar none my favorite part of the movie. The Apostles of Kong is something I'm really interested in doing now. <laughs> I'm trying to understand exactly what that would even entail. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? I don't know. I don't. Yeah, maybe that's your decile. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think I want to be responsible for that. I've accidentally. <laughs> I've accidentally done culty things in my life before, and I don't want to repeat them on the podcast. <laughs> At least the old culty things are just stuck in, in in my memory. So Back to the Future is... Coward. Yeah, well, <laughs> Back to the Future is a movie uh, which has, I mean, the, the paradox at the center of it which is is that a DeLorean goes under 100 miles an hour into the future? I was going to say the paradox is that if you slept with your own mother, who would your dad be? <laughs> oh, yeah, but, that too. <laughs> like to me, that's kind of, that's the, the central paradox about like if you kill your father, can you ever be born? Like it's it's just a funny version of that. And the the film. For one thing, I mean, it's really something to just watch this movie now and be like, everybody just loves this subplot about this kid's mom trying to bang him. Like it just, (laughs) when you say it out loud, it really shouldn't be that funny or that exciting or that like, I don't know, occasionally kind of sexy. And it's a little, it's a little weird, but it's also the, the foundation for one of the most popular movies of the last 50 years which I think is just a fabulous thing. But that kind of paradox is the the root of the silliness in Back to the Future. Uh, and, and of course, you can say that there are lots or <laughs> so many, so many defining sillinesses within the film. But you could go back to that or you could go back to Christopher Lloyd. I How do you how do we even describe the Doc Brown performance? It's not it's not really a parody of the mad scientist. It's just somebody who really seems like he was conked on the head real good and then got into bed with the Libyans. I just love Christopher Lloyd. I, yeah, I don't know. That's probably as good a description as anything. Like it's not, I don't know. I'm trying to think about like a comp for the doc Brown character. Like it's like when bugs bunny tries to be a mad scientist. Or it's like if you gave Obi Wan Kenobi like a potentially fatal dose of meth or something. Like yeah. it's the same. Like the the mentor character who is who is not really that good at mentoring. Who <laughs> is kind of bad at the whole like let me shepherd you through things. Uh, who needs some some shepherding on his own? Uh, even though Kong. Like, 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to think about <laughs> Khan just with I'm just imagining like Khan with a bunch of like sheep and like big crook <laughs> in his hand and being like no that one sounds, eats my sheep. That sounds so pleasant. <laughs> it's it's a very sweet image, a practically pastoral version of 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 King Khan. Uh, there is nothing quite that pastoral about the Doc Brown character who is, I mean, who is very funny, who is very funny. And he has my second favorite line. My favorite line is anything about, about making fun of Marty's vest. But my second (laughs) favorite line is the one where Marty's trying to tell him that Ronald Reagan is the president. And he says, who's the secretary of the treasury, Jack Benny, because first of all, a very funny line on its own. But second of all, a gag that was funnier for people in 1985 because part of Jack Benny's act was that he was stingy. And I just love that they like have a joke within a joke there. And he's good for quotes about Jack Benny and he's good for getting Marty into lots of trouble, but he's not necessarily good um, at, at being someone who is helpful for his young charge who and I mean, this is this is where the drama in the movie really comes out. But like as someone who has to who has to make his make his own way in the 50s. And I think a lot of the charm in the movie is that Doc Brown is not really that helpful at doing that, uh, that Marty kind of has to do it all by himself. And how he does it includes Darth Vader and involves Chuck Berry. <laughs> they both turn out to be equally important. Doc Brown is like the cat in the hat with a physics degree. Yeah. I think that's what I'm settling on. <laughs> I like that. And with a similar aversion to cleaning things up. Mm. <laughs> yes. I don't know. This is another movie where I really feel like I don't have to explain it. We can just like riff on riff on back to the future. Uh, we can get to the last line eventually. But are there are there things about it in the in that mold of silliness or goofiness that kind of that kind of appeal to you here. I am making a case, albeit slightly wonkily. The Futurama parody. Go on. <laughs> um, I think Fry I think Fry effectively cuts through the paradox and uh really just summarizes what potentially is at stake in this movie when at the near the end of that episode sadly not a final line or it could be in here uh yep i did the nasty and the pasty (laughs) (laughs) the reason why this is a perfect last line is because it makes no sense That's why this this movie makes sense, which is exactly why why it's a perfect last line, because it sounds great. Like what an incredible where we're going. We don't need roads. Outstanding. That's unbelievable line. That's pinnacle of dorm room poster shit. It's perfect. It's so good. The way that Christopher Lloyd says it just completely sells the line. It is a great movie quote. It is like a genuinely great movie one-liner, and it makes no sense. It just like <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense that he says it. <laughs> it is it is meant to be a throwaway. No one was thinking about what the sequel to this might be. No one had that in mind, even a little bit. But it's a great line because it suits the moment and it doesn't matter if it makes sense. It just feels really good. And I think that's kind of how you have to approach Back to the Future, which is a movie I like a whole lot. Like, it's a movie I am genuinely very fond of. But if you start thinking about that movie for, ooh, I would say three to four seconds, all of it just starts to get really weird and you're not quite sure what to do with it anymore. (laughs) But if you think about it too hard, then it strips away a lot of the joy in the film and there is a certain joy to watching someone as short as Michael J. Fox just haul ass as often as he does in this thing. There is a certain joy to watching Crispin Glover go up to to uh, Leah Thompson and say, I am your density. Like the best parts of this are just like the really stupid little moments of of joy and excitement that you just sort of go for the ride with. And to me, that's that's epitomized by 
where we're going, we don't need roads, which, I mean, if you think about that, you actually have to think about Back to the Future 3, and it's true, where they're going, they need a train, which is on <laughs> tracks and not a road, so I guess, I guess at least they're consistent about the silliness. <clears throat> Doc Brown impression as ever. Um, do you, probably you do. Do you know the theme song to Back to the Future? The the Huey, the Huey Lewis in the news. You know what I almost said, which would have been the funniest thing I ever said on this podcast. Uh-huh. I almost said the Huey Newton song because of <laughs> Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> Huey Newton in the news. <laughs> Can you imagine Huey Newton doing the soundtrack for anything, but least of all a movie where a white guy invents rock and roll? <laughs> Which is the most uncomfortable part of the movie to me. It really this is, is a movie, like, and this is a movie with a kid potentially birthing himself. <laughs> like, I think I think that's actually something to talk about as far as the silliness goes, because that scene where he introduces Johnny B. Good to these people a couple years before Johnny B. Good happens. Like it is, it is an uncomfortable scene. If you think about it and think, wow, here is, you know, the Elvisification of one of the great rock songs of all time. Uh, but of course the reason that's funny is your cousin, Marvin, Marvin Barry, like Marvin. that, like that's a, that's the joke. And it was the scene is written for the joke of Marvin Barry as opposed to what's actually happening, which I mean, the actual text of that scene is is creepy and, and unpleasant to think about. That's the it's like, I don't know, I guess it's kind of a viscerally exciting moment. And just I mean, like you're saying, like it's a silly one, but I don't it doesn't even take three to four seconds like one second and it's like um maybe we shouldn't do this like you really couldn't drop a Roy Orbison in there or something like you couldn't find a way to do that and like put a put a weird riff at the end of it alas uh anyway the the theme song is the power of love by That's Huey yeah that one by Huey Lewis and the Newton and the Newtons and the Newtons um, yeah yeah <laughs> um I don't know I don't have particular thoughts about it I just think it's also a silly song that doesn't really merit like deeper consideration so that kind of works I suppose <laughs> yeah you know I like that too um I mean it's the kind it's a great car song like it's a great mm-hmm. driving song because it is so bouncy um it's like you don't need a credit card to ride this train. Like it's it's just very, very also, silly and exciting. Also, no roads in this song. No roads in the song. Only either. trains. Only just trains. trains. <laughs> so maybe I'm maybe I'm underestimating how consistent these people were in the whole where we're going. We don't need roads thing. I just I just think it's such a, a great mission statement for the movie. I like it. It makes sense, sort of, because if you're going to the future, you don't need roads because you can't get to the future on a road. But you're in a car. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just I mean, the only thing that, that I think is more perfect for don't think about it too long or your eyes will cross being annoyed with it is the title back to the future, <laughs> which is again, <laughs> truly on the same level of a, a, a stupendous, stupendous movie title. Absolutely unforgettable. Great vibes makes about as much sense as where we're going. We don't need roads. I think this is a good vibes movie. I think that's, it's kind of fundamentally what's, mm-hmm. what's happening here, I think. And that's, I guess that's sort of where Back to the Future lives for me. Like, it's good vibes, but uh, it's one that I just resist thinking about, really. I mean, it, it is kind of the quintessential good vibes movie. Like, yeah. King Kong is a bad vibes movie. Bad the vibes. vibes are extremely bad. Back sad to the Future. Vibes. Sad vibes. Yeah, sad vibes. Not even bad vibes. And, like, 
Back to the Future is a Glad Vibes movie. Glad you know, Vibes. That's that's a good thing. Um, you ready to go to the one that's not? Yeah, what kind famous? of vibes is this one? <laughs> okay, so I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Uh, I want to stick with some Glad Vibes for a second. There is mm. a Twitter account I follow at BM Row, whose, whose username is Bront. And <laughs> a few years ago, he tweeted, I am a fugitive from the Yang gang. And I like <laughs> laughed for a long time. Anyway, uh, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang is from 1932. I think it actually kind of fits a really interesting spot in American movies, because in 1931, we have Frankenstein and in 1933, we have King Kong. And both of those are about the supernaturally endowed beings who are like people, but people won't recognize them as people. Does that seem fair to say? Mm-hmm. And then and one of them is Jesus. And well, you know, one of them is <laughs> Jesus and the other ones reanimated like Jesus. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. The messianic qualities of oh, Frankenstein's man. monster. And so <laughs> like you take, you take your Frankenstein's monster and you take your King Kong and, and over the course of those three years, there are two movies which are just absolutely uh, front and center famous, even for people who, again, don't watch movies at all, let alone or like don't watch movies from the 30s. Like you recognize the Boris Karloff Frankenstein and you, and you recognize the the animatronic or, or stop motion animated, I should say, King Kong. And in 1932, there is a movie, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, which I think is very similar in the idea of someone who is unjustly hunted this idea of someone who the society cannot accept and so they hunt him down and persecute him and he has no idea why it's happening like to me that's one of the most important things is that he doesn't understand what's going on frankenstein when he throws that girl in the in the pond doesn't understand what that will do and how could he not only is he new but he was undeaded like he's the last person who would, who you would expect. Uh, so when the monster does that, that's like, that's a thing. And then of course, King Kong doesn't understand why he's under attack from these people with gas bombs and who are dragging him to New York. He has no idea why that's happening. And in, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, the main character, James Allen played by Paul Muni, who is one of the great, great actors in American movie history. Um, uh, Muni plays James Allen, and this is based on a true story, which is kind of fun. Uh, James Allen is a, a guy who falls on some hard times and essentially becomes a, becomes like a hobo kind of figure, a, a bindle stiff. And he happens to be at a robbery in, in one of those like nickel hamburger places, you know, those depression era nickel hamburger places. And he's he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the cops think that he's an accessory to this crime, which went pretty badly, even though he wasn't, he was again, really like a very literal case of wrong place, wrong time. But they sentenced him to the chain gang for this horrible crime that he didn't commit. And the film is a pre-code movie like Frankenstein and like uh, King Kong are both pre-code movies and watching it you get the the sense of like we can get away with showing you some really frightening disgusting stuff because we don't have a haze code we don't have like ratings and like there is nothing about this movie that is fun or friendly paul muni is playing someone who is down on his luck and then goes to the worst place in the world which is basically a chain gang in georgia breaking up rocks and it's the it's the one place that's integrated. And I think that's so pointed, even in a movie from 1932. I think it's very pointed that he is in the one part of Georgia that is integrated because all black men and all white men on the chain gang are seen as trash by everybody. Like it's it's a complete come down for him. And then one day in the middle, I mean, it's a very interesting sequence, especially how it's shot. Um James Allen escapes the chain gang. He he manages to break free 
and the dogs go after him. And the way that he manages to escape them is he goes into a pond and like gets a reed and like breathes through the reed underwater. And you can see him doing that. And it's a very clever piece of photography. And that's how he gets out. And then he turns his life around. Uh, he becomes a lawyer. He goes to Illinois and and becomes a lawyer and a community like a community uh, standard bearer, someone who's like really built himself up. I mean, from less than nothing. And the the film takes us through. He's he's become a success and he's become um, he's become someone's boyfriend. Uh, I think it's Helen. It's been a while since I've watched this. Um, yes, his girlfriend, Helen, played by Helen Vinson. That's why that's confusing, <laughs> because I'm like, it's the same name. I hate it when movies do that anyway. Um, and he's he's on his way out and like on his way up. Um, did I say lawyer? Yeah, he's not a lawyer. He's like a like a businessman. I'm sorry. They all seem the same in the 30s, man. Everybody wears the same suits. Uh, but he becomes like this businessman and and becomes successful, um, sort of working isn't his it, way up. Isn't it increasingly crazy to think about though? Like you could just go somewhere and start a completely new life. Like how is that even possible now? <laughs> yeah, and the way he does it, he just flips his name around. Yeah, I think. like <laughs> I think it's not that hard to track him down. Like he just like flips his name, <laughs> and he's like three states away. Like it's not that far. <laughs> yeah, but he, he, I mean, he he really does restart his life. But eventually, mm-hmm. he's uh, he's tracked down a little bit. Um, and the reason he's tracked down is because he meets Helen, and he has a wife from his initial marriage, uh, which he which he had when he was a hobo. And that wife decides she doesn't want to lose out on this man, especially now that he's turned into somebody. And so she tells the the cops basically who he is and where he is. And his issue is that Georgia's authority, and it's never said Georgia, it's just where the guy who wrote this is from. Uh, but the the authority of the Georgia police, like they can't get him. Like, all he has to do to not go back on the chain gang is not leave Illinois. Like, because if he's in Illinois, he's safe. But if he goes to Georgia, they will arrest him immediately. Uh, And he gets, oh, I would say maybe the worst, the worst lawyer in the history of the world. And (laughs) he decides uh, to, to cut a deal with Georgia in which he will go back to the chain gang for a month as a trustee. and you know, not have to do all the hard labor stuff, essentially like getting a desk job. And then once he's there for a month, they'll call it square and they'll let him go back. And like, that's not what happens. Like once they get him, they're like, okay, we got this guy back. You know, obviously, um, obviously we're supposed to keep him and he escapes. So we're going to, we're going to keep him here basically forever. And that's where we, it's not quite where the the last line comes in, but that seems like a good place to to pause. I assume this one is basically new to you in a way that our apostolic films are not. Well, I've seen the other two and not seen this one, so <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll go with yes. Is there is there anything that we need to we need to talk about more? I've tried to do the the shorter version, which I realize is not making the movie sound quite as interesting as it is. Uh, well, I mean, I suspect this is what you're about to go into. I just like since you've already said what the final line is, I'm trying to figure out like where this dude gets a connection to what that final line would be. Does that make yeah, sense? Like, yeah. I'm trying to figure out why that's topical. <laughs> So at the end of the the film, he escapes this other chain gang. So like, I guess he's good at doing that. But at this point, he like can't go back to his business. And the very last scene he runs into, he not runs into, he asks Helen to meet him somewhere. He like writes a letter and it's like dark and the night is like foggy and, and really unclear. And Helen, um, is is trying to help him out and it's like can't you tell me where you're going um do you need money are you going to keep in touch and he's like shaking his head at all this stuff 
and she says, how do you live? And he responds, I steal. And then he just sort of like fades away into the darkness. And it's this very, very pointed moment of we are now watching this person who was taken into prison by a mistake for something that he never did was not responsible for and then someone who proved that he could be a really useful member of society like a good guy like a, a pillar of the community someone who um who cared for others and and made good decisions and now because of the legal system because of the the way that he's been persecuted and criminalized he is now in a position where he can't even go back to it and he has to go and and become a thief like he the only way that he can live is to is to steal and to to take things that aren't his so by putting him in this situation over and over again congratulations to the state of georgia for making him a criminal and it's a it's a great last line because the movie's kind of been working up to this point for a while um in fact there's this like there's this great double think moment in the in the film where the lawyer from Georgia is like, you know, our chain gangs are good and they definitely work. How do we know? Because this guy escaped and he turned into a good person. Clearly they must be rehabilitating. And then of course, at the end of the movie, there is the, the ultimate denial of that. Um, when, when Alan says, you know, I steal like now I am now I'm the person who they've always said I was going to be. Now I am the thief. Now I am the itinerant, uh, the person who is going to have to rip off other people just to keep myself alive. So maybe this is the bad vibes movie. If Colin is sad and Back to the Future is glad, I think this one is just bad. The The vibes are the vibes are not good, <laughs> um, but it is it is an interesting film. Because it's one of those one of those like early 30s kind of social conscience movies. And it's funny because Paul Muni is best known for uh, playing Scarface in the Howard Hawks Scarface colon uh, the shame of a nation, which was not his idea to put the colon in there. But that's like another that one's also set up as a kind of morality tale just told from the opposite end. And Muni is terrific in both of them i think this is the best i've ever seen him though um he's he's playing someone who is just terrified who is always a little bit afraid and who is making decisions that are stupid to be perfectly honest because he's afraid because he's hoping if i do this then people will leave me alone or i hope that if i do this it will get me some grace or if I do this it'll keep me alive a little bit longer or whatever the case is but he keeps making bad decisions not because he's a bad person and the film is very clear about that but he's making bad decisions because the the fear that the law has put into him makes him do stuff that's obviously very dumb uh so that's my that's my basic pitch for this one um maybe not the Maybe not the AFI quotes list famous, uh, but it's it's definitely a very fitting last line. And for for those of us who are fugitives from the Yang gang, as it were, on film Twitter, then then this is one <laughs> that people that people remember because it does encapsulate the movie so perfectly. Other thoughts about this movie with a really long title? <laughs> um. <clears throat> Yes, but also I know there's the AFI quotes list. Do they have one that's just final lines? They do not have a last line okay. one. Um, though, so if I mean, you ha if you have thoughts, I can look <clears throat> up their movie quotes ones and see how many of them are like last lines in the movie. Uh, I'm just curious what your like <clears throat> what your favorite final line is for any like anything, not just in this episode. I can riff while you think about that. Happens to Betsy. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I like the comp between or the, the easy comp between this and, and King Kong and that both of the final lines serve as a like definitional thing as well. Like right at the end of back to the future perfectly encapsulates the the vibes and the 
kind of the emo- the tenor of the whole thing. Um, but you know, these two, like, right at this moment of either self definition or definition of of someone else, and I don't. I, I like that comp. I like that as like right. I think we're looking for that moment of heft from the end of movies a lot, right? As you were saying, there's a lot of, you know, the best final lines are on the AFI list already. Like, right, there's an appeal to that. This is the moment to, okay, well, what did it all mean? And so those moments of of self or other definition between this and King Kong, like that, that's really interesting to me. Um, and right, how clearly, you know, in a movie from... 32 and 33 like mm-hmm. right the movies themselves seem kind of clear about like these aren't bad people but the systems around them force them into bad situations and what do you expect them to choose at that point um i i, I like the clarity on that and then kind of the difference of like well what happens if you get to define yourself or not um there's a paper in there somewhere I, like that connection's just sticking out to me <laughs> But I, I don't know. I guess I like that as sort of the like big take home moment of like, well, what did it all mean for this character that you're really interested in? Um, and not like it's not hurting Back to the Future that it doesn't have that in my assessment. It's just I'm I'm interested in the vibes versus like meaning kind of difference. Yeah, I think it is sort. Of, I mean, one of the things that stands out to me about two of these being from the from the early '30s is how um how interesting it is that right after sound becomes you know the the basis for the basis for these movies i think i think they all just kind of understood and it's not like they had to make this idea up new or anything but they just they understood that ending a film with like a real whiz bang of a line is a is a great way to to get people to keep thinking about your movie Mm -hmm. uh once they leave the theater and i i just i really appreciate that about the <laughs> about the the actual um the actual film or both films i think which is just we've adapted to our time and we understand that to keep the audience thinking about us we have to we have to end it with a certain kind of line um i mean the old writing rule that like is overly generalized but right what are what are readers most likely to remember well what you put last and what you put first so mm-hmm. close and open big are you closer to an answer? Or are you still yeah, like digging? I'm, I'm looking through some. I can tell you, I'll put it like this. I'll, I'll tell you some of the other movies that I was thinking about for right, this. Right. Um, one of them is Planet of the Apes, mm. which has as that great last line of, of angry. Which I'm kind of surprised Heston. isn't here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thought about that one a lot. I was I was definitely definitely taken with that. I thought about putting the Matrix here. Hmm which which has which has a really fitting last line. I thought about putting uh, Pirates of the Caribbean here, but that like and really bad eggs, etc. thing. Um, the, <laughs> not the, good topical. <laughs> yeah, not the time, not the time for that. Um, I thought about the candidate, of course, uh, which ends with Robert Redford having won his election and then looking and saying, now what? which is just this incredible, incredibly cynical moment, uh, which is which is probably the best part of the movie. Uh, the one that I was most tempted by, I ended up using this movie somewhere else as of today, which doesn't mean I'm going to keep using it, but whatever. Um, there's a movie called Hell's a Poppin', which is. I mean, truly, it might be one of the five or six weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life. It's just it's all fourth wall breaking. It's from like 1941 or something. (laughs) It is it is a very strange movie. Um, But the end of the end of the film sort of goes with the guy going up to the screenwriter uh, played by Elisha Cook Jr. um, and saying, here's what I think of think of it as in your screenplay uh for this movie and he just shoots him a whole bunch of times <laughs> and then <laughs> elijah cook jr says well you can't hurt me that way i always wear a bulletproof vest around the studio <laughs> which is <laughs> just i mean it, it is such a such a perfect moment 
for that movie. So those were the other ones that I kind of had in mind there. Um, but I How think you... it, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just going to say, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to pick one that wasn't on the AFI list already. Uh, because well, do you I have mean, a favorite among those. <laughs> I like the hells of Poppin one a lot. I'm, I'm very fond or, of uh, among the AFI ones. I mean, Oh, I love duck soup. The, the way that duck soup ends with, um, Margaret Dumont singing the all hail Fredonia song mm, mm. and the Marx brothers all throwing fruit at her after <laughs> that they're done throwing fruit at their enemy. Um, yeah, that's, that's the one that I just, I love that. I love the end of network. Um, the first man to be killed for bad ratings is a great last line. Um, Nashville doesn't count because it's because it's sun. Um, but things like Shane, things like Gone with the Wind, you know, those are or um, even Grapes of Wrath, uh, the where the people monologue like those are all on there. And it is not it is not surprising to me that they are on there with with last lines like that. Chinatown, Chinatown, Wizard of Oz, no Raging Bull. Casablanca, you know, like there some like it hot is probably my all time favorite as it which is not an mm. original thought, but they're all here already. Um, so I kind of had to dig a little bit harder to find stuff that was not taken. Why do you continue to deny me? A Wachowski's moment. Well, remember earlier when I said Robert Zemeckis and you were like, how can I make this about who framed Roger Rabbit? Because you continued to deny me my moments. <laughs> anyway, that's why. Um, uh, rude. Spiel? Yeah. All right. So <laughs> the original movie on the AFI list, number 41, is King Kong, which has a very famous last line about not the airplanes killing Kong, but... Uh, Twas beauty killed the beast. And I think that's just such a spot on uh, moment within the film. It's such a great statement of the cynicism, I think, with within it, uh, which I think the movie recognizes sometimes, but doesn't always do a great job of seeing in itself. And then I wanted to go with other movies that have these perfect last lines. So, of course, in Back to the Future, that last line of where we're going, we don't need roads makes absolutely no sense. Neither does the rest of the movie, but it's it's just funny and it's it's breezy and it's exciting. And you're like, yeah, we don't need roads. We can go back to the future like <laughs> all of that, all of that sort of silliness inherent in it. That that's really fun. And I'm a fugitive from a chain gang ends with I steal uh, this whispered um, final thing to say to one's best girl in the dark, uh, a film which talks about how there is this person who is not a bad guy, but a down on his luck guy, a guy who is hurt and someone who manages to come out of a terrible situation, make himself into a, into a productive, I mean, kind person too. It's not just that he's like, you know, a businessman, but like that he's a kind, decent human being. And it turns out to be the government. It turns out to be the laws. It turns out to be his society, which turns him into into a thief at the end, not him being such a bad person, but the the world itself has conspired to make him make him someone who has to steal to live. So we have two movies with extremely different vibes, Back to the Future and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Speaking of the story of the oppressed in America, um, I like... <clears throat> I like the delivery and the narrative function and work of I am a fugitive more, but I'm going to choose. Also, this is the moment where I remind you of the pretender song so I can annoy you for a few minutes at the end of this. <laughs> You're welcome. Also mentions trains. Trains are the theme. <laughs> it's actually I'm going to use use the, the train thing later anyway. <laughs> I'm back on the train. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go with back to the future here. I think as much as I like the function of, I am a fugitive more just the sheer memorability of back to the future, I think sets it over the top here, right? It captures the essence, the heart of that film really well. And 
you know, is this adventurous thing and like, you know, it's just perfect. And it sounds, it's totally fitting with some of the other stuff that comes out of Doc Brown's mouth. Um, <clears throat> but just like how easy it is to take that, you know, like we were saying to like put that on a poster or to make that like a sillier inspirational post, like just the, again, just the, the reach of that one, I guess the memorability of it, the like how, uh, how easy it is to take that out and just present it in different forms, I guess. Like to me, that's sort of what sets the the biggest final lines apart. Um, and I think, you know, right, you can do that with King Kong. I think you can do that with Back to the Future. And I think, again, I like the work that I Am a Fugitive is doing more, uh, but it seems harder to separate that a little bit. Um, so... I guess for that reason, I'm going with Back to the Future here, which I think is which I think is fair, like in the same way that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn or I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship or nobody's perfect. Like all of those have have this kind of utility beyond itself. And and I would agree that there is more of a utility and the complete nonsense of where we're going. (laughs) We don't need roads. So, uh, original film, King Kong, replacement movie, Back to the Future. Um, I mean, whomst among us has not looked at Michael J. Fox and thought, wow, that's like King Kong. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, what if King Kong had a giant skateboard? What if, what if King Kong had a big puffy orange vest? <laughs> Is this part of his Jesus garb? Yeah, you know, Jesus had the sandals. King Kong's got a big orange vest, so you can see him from a way off distance, <laughs> shining like a beacon of freedom. <laughs> Thank you for still putting up with us. Um, if you were interested in previous episodes of this podcast, like part one of this, uh, where we talked about kings who were similarly um, articulate. <laughs> compared to King Kong, but having to do a 21st century rock. Uh, If you are interested in finding out a little bit more about us, getting links to both of our blogs, getting links to his playlists and my dumb movie reviews on Letterboxd, uh, all of those are available at subtitlespodcast.com. And we'll see you next time.